Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. I'm Mike Mason. Senator Tobin, how are you today? I am really good today. Thanks, Mike. We are being joined today by Lon Garrison. Lon is the Executive Director of the Association of Alaska School Boards and is a longtime school board member for the Sitka School Board. Uh, Lon, thanks for joining us today. It's wonderful to be here. So, first of all, you have been an invaluable resource Uh, as Senator Tobin and I and others have been working on education policy, specifically kind of the education funding policy. Uh, Give us a little bit of background. You came from sitting on a school board to uh, joining this organization and in this day in and day out. You've been here for a while, right? Yeah, I I sat on the Sitka school board for just about nine years, uh, served on the Association of Alaska School Board's Board of Directors, for eight years, served as their president, so went through leadership. Um, and while my time on the Sitka School Board, uh, myself and Dr. Connolly, who were on the board with me, he and I were the legislative advocates. So we joined up as a team. I learned a lot from him as an experienced school board member. Um, he had been a school board member in Ketchikan for many years and then moved to Sitka, and he'd also been a school board member in Wyoming. So he had had the opportunity to uh, work with the legislature, obviously here in Alaska, but also in Wyoming. So I learned a lot from Tom and the approach of, you know, being able to speak to any legislator and the need to do that. So that was kind of my background in terms of my connection between the school board world and um, the legislature. And then uh, I joined the staff with ASB in 2015. I started out as uh, working basically in uh, board development. So I did uh, board workshops, worked with school boards, advisory boards, worked on policy, conducted superintendent searches. I kind of did the whole myriad of things uh, before uh, I applied for and got the job as the executive director here at ASB in 2020. And uh, Norm Wooten, my predecessor, uh, was retiring then, and so that's when I took over. So I've been in in the position just a little over two years now. Um, kind of crazy to take over uh, just as a pandemic starts, who would have thought? But we made it through. Uh, we continue to do the work that we do. And, and you know, we try to be as active as we can be representing school districts and school boards across the state here at the Capitol. Can I ask a clarifying question? Because I think sometimes folks out in the the real world don't really understand the relationship between school boards, the legislature and the executive branch. They, they don't seem to have a firm grasp of why do we have school boards? What is the school board's relationship to the legislature and what is a legislature's relationship to the department of education and early development? Can you help unpack that for us? Well, I can sure try. So uh, we know that the constitution, right? Set up, 
or mandates, basically. It's the one thing in the Constitution that it says that we must do other than pass a budget that the legislature must do. And that is uh, to establish and maintain a system of public education. It really gave that to the legislature to do. So the legislature must appropriate uh, the funds to make that happen. And then the legislature also uh, must approve statutes. And, and then the department, as part of the executive branch, right, takes those statutes uh, and creates regulations to implement those things. So where do school boards fit in? Well, school boards really um, are locally elected state officials that act on behalf of the legislature because there's no way that the legislature can be the school board for the state. You know, the legislature's in session only a certain amount of time, um, and you have such a wide variety of needs across the state of Alaska uh, that local school boards are necessary. And this has been the model across the country. The entire United States uses that model. And some argue that it's not effective, uh, but most of us argue that it's probably one of the most effective and purest forms of democracy, representative democracy, that you can see. And in Alaska, we're nonpartisan. So anybody can be a school board member, but when they come to the table, they are at the table as a nonpartisan member. And it's through the school board that... Uh, Policies are created and adopted. Regulations for the operations of the district are adopted. And the school board hires the superintendent. And the superintendent is responsible for managing and implementing the program of education for each local district. Um, And the beauty of it is, is that those school board members are locally elected. They come directly from the constituency for which that school system is intended to support. And the other piece is that constituency is the same constituency that elects the legislature. So in many ways, you know, it's just kind of a tiered effect. And so when school board members come to the legislature and and advocate for education funding um, and what they need in order to do the work that they've been tasked to do, they really are speaking somewhat on a, in my mind, a bit of a peer-to-peer situation because they're representing the same constituents that legislators are. And it's an opportunity for the legislature to get a much better understanding of the local needs for each school district. And I think that sometimes is the piece that gets lost, that, oh, You know, for instance, in Anchorage and the neighborhoods that you represent, Senator Tobin, you're only responsible for that piece. No, that's not true, right? It takes all of the legislature coming together to understand and support public education across the state. In my opinion, it takes all of Alaska school boards to communicate with the legislature and let them know what they need. And some are going to have very different needs than others, but in totality, we have to come to some agreement on what we need. I want to uh, ask about school boards. So I was a former reporter back uh, before I, uh, I came to the legislature, and I have covered a lot of municipal governments and a lot of school boards, and none of them behaved the same way. I uh, remember distinctly uh, uh, Mexico, Missouri. I was charged with covering the The city council and the school board, they were on different, like one was a Monday night, one was a Tuesday night. 
The city council never met for more than 10 minutes, ever. The school board never met for less than like six hours <laughs> kind of thing. And, yep. uh, and I've seen that play out uh, here in Alaska and, and, right. and other places where uh, school boards and other governments behave differently. And that is good, isn't it? That it's, it's I mean, it, there's no, it's not just one way of doing something. We try to coach school boards in terms of how to run a meeting and how to conduct their business. But you, you, you know, you can't coach human nature. <laughs> uh, we try to. We try to make sure that, that people are behaving in a way that allows you to get the work done that you need to do. But human nature is human nature. And uh, we, see, we see it here in the legislature, and we see it on local boards. Um, and most of those boards are elected with no idea what they're stepping into. You know, they, they get elected on an agenda, maybe one or two items that has really irked them. You know, there's something about it that they, they want to go and get on the school board and make a difference. Um, that even happened to me. Uh, you know, I was involved in an issue around a particular uh, music teacher that didn't work out. My girls were in in music and band, and we had a great program in Sitka. And, oh, boy, you know, things just didn't work out. And so I got it. That's how I got involved, you know, as parents. And the next thing I know, and we resolved the issue, um, it, it got resolved. And the superintendent at the time said, you need to be on the school board, you know, because we need people who are willing to do the work and, and be at the table and, you know, figure things out. But, you know, when it comes to finding people willing to serve, that's hard. Uh, in small communities, it can be exceptionally hard and it can be, you know, you are under a microscope. So if you're, you know, in a small community where maybe you only have a few hundred or, you know, a thousand people, uh, you know everybody and everybody knows you. And so it can be very, it can be pretty tough. It can be pretty divisive. On the other hand, it can be one of the best things you ever do because when, you know, you see one of those kids that you know if, uh, the school system hadn't done what it needed to do, and you as board members hadn't done what you needed to do, that student wouldn't be walking across and getting their diploma. And, you know, that was, for me, that was always the best reward to see students succeed, especially those that you knew had huge challenges. So, you know, with ASB, we really work to try to educate people on what their role is as a school board member to understand what it means to be in leadership um, and how to work with your community, how to communicate. And it really is, if you look at how many members of the legislature have served on school boards, it's surprising, you know, and many of some of the best leaders in the building have been on school boards um, and have that in their background. You know, Senator Betty Davis was a school board member before she became a legislator, was a legislator, uh, served a long time, and then went back and served on the Anchorage School Board again for at least another two terms. She just couldn't help herself, you know, but she was, she was great, um, great lady and dedicated to public service. And I think school boards for her were the genesis of uh, that public service. So I have two questions, Mike. I'm going to jump in here. 
my first question is thinking about, and maybe Mike can actually help me with this, how many school board members are sitting on Senate or House education, former school board members? I know Senator Stevens, and I think Representative Hemshoot was on the State yes. Board of Education. Yes, she was on the State Board. Anyone else? I, I don't know. I mean, I know yeah. uh, I know my former boss, uh, Chris Tuck, was on the Anchorage School Board. Yes, he was. And uh, we were both morning people, and uh, he would come often, and he would – he would pull up the chair next to me, and uh, he al- always would talk about the school board as, like, the most fun that he had, that this job was not all that much fun. But the Anchorage School Board, he thought was fun, and also uh, kind of uh, provided a lot of the lessons that he brought into the Alaska legislature. So I know he was on the school board, and there's lots of others. Yeah, I know my father. That's how he got involved uh, into public service is something happened when I was in high school and he realized that if he was going to be there for me and for the other students that he needed to get involved and he ran for the Nome school board and was elected and served for a considerable amount of time until I graduated and well after and it was his first foray into public service and he later served on the Nome city council and used his school board experience to really talk about the value of a high-quality public education for every student. My, my follow-up question to this, and it's because I have been reminded today by my staff that uh, I'm a millennial, and so I enjoy those millennial things, and one is <laughs> SNL. And there was a series of skits during the pandemic about school boards oh, and yes. about some of the public testimony right. that was occurring in our school boards. And so I'm curious to hear from your perspective, is that still happening? Is some of the crazy things that SNL depicted probably uh, for jokes, they, they expounded right. and maybe took some artistic license. Uh, are those types of experiencing happening in our school boards right now? I would say for the most part, no. Um, I think that, you know, the whole, all of the issues that surrounded the pandemic um, and the impact of that on everybody's lives have, you know, lessened. And so the pressure on school boards to continually make the right decision for everybody in that regard on things that didn't pertain specifically to education um, it, it has, has lessened to a greater degree. And so we're not seeing that piece. But, you know, when that was happening, um, and it, it happened to some degree in Alaska, we know that uh, the Anchorage School Board struggled with that, and other boards across the state did well, and other communities didn't have any problems with it, you know. Um, and everybody kind of had to decide how they were going to handle that and how their communities needed to deal with it the thing about the pandemic was there was no one right answer for everybody. You know, everybody had a different fear about it. Everybody had a different idea about what was right and what was wrong because we had never been through it. Um, And I think uh, school boards did the best that they could. And I think they did a really good job. It unfortunately led to, you know, um, some behaviors that were, uh, really tragic in my mind, uh, and we lost a lot of good school board members because you know they were they felt threatened. Um, I I didn't hear that so much in Alaska, so I'm happy about that. And I, it wasn't that some of those folks aren't there, but for the most part, I think Alaskans, while we 
go at it politically every once in a while and we have our issues, we still band together as Alaskans. And when something comes up, um, we generally tend to have each other's back. I hope that's still the case. Let's talk about uh, what uh, is kind of the, the issue of the day. So every day when I get up and I come to work, I'm uh, one of the things I'm working on is Senate Bill 52 to uh, increase the base student allocation. Uh, I know Senator Tobin is doing the same thing, and Lon has been a tremendous advocate for uh, public education here in the state of Alaska. Let's talk about like the actual the, the policy, the bills. I've had people sit right where Lon is. I've had people sit right where uh, Senator Tobin are. School board members, teachers, superintendents, mm-hmm. the the data is overwhelming that our school districts are struggling and that there needs to be an infu- an investment, an infusion of resources yeah. into our school districts. Without a question, right? That's right. that's that's yep. the that's the fact. It is the fact. Yeah. And I guess the frustrating part is is that not everybody believes the facts. They don't want to believe the facts or they're given another set of facts that are not necessarily the facts. Okay. And um, I understand everybody has their own perspective and they're going to come to the table and they're going to want what they want. um, And they think this is the best, this is in the best interest of students. So when people talk about that, you know, talk about, performance on the NAEP scores and, and graduation rates and those kinds of things. Um, I guess I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, well, that person cares about kids. So what can I do to help them understand that increasing the base student allocation is something that we need to do if we're going to have a true system of public education in the state of Alaska that the constitution says we will have. And so for me, that's the crux of the issue. Um, And when we don't invest in public education, then we just spend and we don't get the outcomes that we hope for because we're spending in short bursts that don't have longevity to it. They don't have an end goal in mind. I remember when sitting on the Sitka School Board, one of the things that we did was we would create and review a strategic plan. And when we had to go uh, to the Sitka City and Borough Assembly and advocate for the maximum amount of local contribution, um, it was a challenge at that time because we we didn't have uh, an assembly that was favorable to producing that maximum funding. And I had to rely on that strategic plan as this is what the community told us and that we work towards for student outcomes. And here's the data that says we're doing the right thing, but we need your help. And I think the, where we're at now is that the data is saying we're not succeeding because we're not investing. If we invest, students will succeed. And it's really just that simple. So... Senator Tobin, um, I mean, every day we wake up and go to work. Uh, what, do, what do you think? There are many things that I have considered in trying to respond to those who bring up alternative facts, those who bring up 
or articulate different considerable data points, those who have concerns or reservations. And I come down to some fundamental truths, the, the few things that we should lay on the table, we should show all our cards. The first is how we fund public education is a policy call. Pre-statehood, we reimbursed school districts for their costs. They came to us and said, this is how much it costs to provide education to students. The state and the local community would come together and make sure that the school would have all of their energy needs covered and their salaries uh, provided for and so on and so forth. After statehood, we realized that to really meet the constitutional imperative in the education clause meant that we had to equitably fund education. And that's where you see the first formula funding, 1961. That is the first time the foundation formula was introduced into statute. And it included an amount for teachers and administrators. It included an amount for uh, special education and some of those components. And it included an amount for buildings. And that was how we got to where we are today. The interesting part is it also had a local contribution requirement. And it also used federal impact aid to help create what we call basic need. So now here in 2023, with people telling me, well, there's all these fund balances we need to consider, or we need to apply some sort of arbitrary statewide accountability measure, or we need to engage in more oversight of all 54 school districts. I keep coming down to the fundamental truth of we have a foundation formula that has been affirmed as fair and equitable. It has been used for decades to fund our school systems, and we collectively have decided that the agents of the legislature, those who we delegate the authority of providing public education in our communities, are our school boards. We believe in the Article 10 of the Constitution, maximize local control. And all of a sudden, I'm in this space where I'm having to play whack-a-mole with every pop-up, well, have you considered this or what about that, when fundamentally the question is, what do we believe we should be providing so that every child has a fair and equitable access to public education in terms of funding? And do we believe that this affirmation of local control and delegation of authority is the right way to provide that system of public education? Because if the answer is no to both those questions, then we should reopen the formula and we should redevise all of the systems of how we provide public education but if the answer to both those questions is yes, then we need to substantially increase the BSA and believe in the authority of our school districts to provide a high-quality education for every student. I want to ask about inflation, and uh, I'm going to uh, kind of personalize this just a little bit. A couple of years ago, um, so I make a pretty good living. My wife makes a pretty good living. Uh, inflation. You have a great boss. Yeah, I've got a great boss. Uh, <laughs> inflation is not one of those things that, that really impacted me on a day-to-day basis. But a couple of years ago, my wife started making like offhand comments about, you know, this is costing way more than I remember it used to mm-hmm. be, used to mm-hmm. cost. And that just ramped up. And like, uh, and so just, you know, day after day, week after week, 
just these things, these costs that kept you know piling on top of each other. And I knew we were going to we were in for this because if that is something that is in my life, I'm not putting together a school budget right. like a school board is. So I knew that inflation was going to be a thing and it is a great big huge thing. Inflation was 8% last year, we're at a 40-year high. It has really really impacted public education in Alaska, hasn't it? Oh yeah. And you know we toss out the number 8%. That's an average, right? And the problem with averages is they don't describe the context of the effect of inflation. Because if you were to go to Bush, Alaska, you wouldn't see 8% inflation. Uh, you're going to see inflation that is 20, 30, 40, 50%, depending on what we're talking about. Uh, so, and I think, I think for Alaskans, we're used to stuff costing a lot, you know, and you, and we get increases in, you know, the fuel surcharge when you, have something shipped on a barge, you know? So you're just, I've been in Southeast Alaska for 35 years and we're just used to that, you know? Oh, it's going to cost more. Well, that's, we live here and then we just got to do it. But this last year, I think it was a piece that where it finally, everybody kind of went, wow, this is, uh, this is unusual. And I think for Bush, Alaska and those schools there, it was more than just, wow, it was like, how are we going to survive? When your fuel costs go double, you know, and you didn't know that that's going to happen, and then you do a bid again for fuel, you know, uh, and that fuel has to get barged up the Yukon or the or the Kuskokwim or whatever, uh, and you find out, oh, it, it doubled again this year. Uh, it just, you go, well, how am I going to educate kids? Because... I have to have enough fuel to heat the building. I have to have enough fuel to run the generators so we have electricity and that we might be able to to access limited broadband. You know, all these things start to add up. And then when you start to go, well, you know, a gallon of milk in this village costs $25, you, you know, and, and maybe the school gets a little bit better deal on it but probably not that much. You know, when you start adding all that up, you go, wow, that is incredible. And that's not something that Anchorage faced. Anchorage faced inflation, but not to that degree. You know, they have a buying power that's much different and an economy, a scale of economy that insulates them a little bit more. But I think that's the piece as a statewide organization that we try to facilitate that communication about the impacts of, you know, you have rural districts that are suffering these things, and then you have large urban districts that are suffering those issues and others, you know, that, uh, so inflation was insidious. It still is. It's a huge problem. Um, and it eats up what little we have in education funding because it doesn't go directly to instruction. But you know, I don't want people to get this false narrative that those things that are not directly related to instruction are not important. And that's the piece that um, keeps getting put forward is that, oh, we don't need to pay for all these other things. We just need a teacher in front of a student, 
Yeah, that's probably the most important thing we need to do is make sure we have high-quality teachers working with students. But for those teachers to do what they do and do it well and effectively, we need all the other supports, and those are the pieces that inflation has really hammered. You know, whether it's, you know, the wages and benefits for all the other workers or the maintenance and operations. And, and it's usually maintenance and operations that in the past has taken a hit when we have to deal with budget cuts. We'll cut all the supplies. We'll cut maintenance back to the very minimum. We'll do what we can to reduce operational costs so we can keep teachers in front of students. And that's a hard decision to make. Um, and I, I don't know that it's always the right decision. Uh, but every district, every board has to make that for themselves. I can't tell them what's right or wrong. They, can, they have to look at their own community and their own students and their needs. Today in Senate Education, we talked about the teacher pipeline. Where do teachers come from? And there's a lot of interest from a lot of states about growing your own. Mm-hmm. And so I think about this conversation around why do we need to increase the BSA? And I take it down again to the beginning. So my best friend is an educator. We went to middle school and high school together. We rode the bus, both of us, the same bus, to our public school. We walked through clean hallways. We used clean locker rooms. We swam in clean yep. and well-managed pools We had a guidance counselor. We had a a mental health counselor who encouraged us both to join peer helpers so we could support our fellow students and provide mental health support for the people that we care about. We sat at clean and well-structured desks. We used chalk and dry erase markers. We had folks who made us hot lunch every day. There was often fry bread on Fridays. It was delightful. We had... Excellent support services. Both she and I were in honor society. We would regularly enjoy our librarian and the books that she recommended. We would often engage in after school activities around mm-hmm. plays. For her, she was in volleyball. I myself wrestled. There is this experience we had. And she went off to university, got a great opportunity at UAA to get a master's degree, or excuse me, her math degree, and then later at UAS, her master's degree in education, and now teaches at a public school in Anchorage. And I think about this idea of where do educators come from? They come from support services in our schools. The educators who sat in front of us were incredibly important. They were the ones who inspired her to become a teacher. They were the ones who inspired me to begin this journey of public service. But they were a part of the full equation. We wouldn't have been able to go on to achieve the things that we have been able to obtain if it hadn't been for the school nutrition specialists, if it hadn't been for the janitors, if it hadn't been for the lifeguards and student activity specialists. It is confusing to me that people think those are not important pieces of the education conversation, that all the money should only go to the classroom educator. Uh, I grew up in a very privileged situation where my math teacher, my social studies teacher didn't clean toilets. They weren't vacuuming their classrooms. They weren't building their curricula systems. They had people to do 
those specialized services for them so they could provide the high-quality individualized instruction that we needed. I get very frustrated when I hear this continued dialogue about we have such high overhead when that overhead is why I am here. That overhead is why we all are here. I couldn't agree more. It's extremely frustrating because I think people don't realize that it takes the compendium of all of those things to produce student success, you know, and it's the same, it's same thing happened for me as a student. And I know I have two daughters, grown daughters that live in Juneau um, and are thriving. One of which is a teacher. She's currently working for discovery Southeast as a, as a teacher for them. So she's not currently in the public school system here, but serving public school students She's a science teacher, middle, middle school science teacher. And, you know, they got great education because they got an opportunity to be with teachers who did excellent work because they were supported by a system that really believed in all of the pieces of the system. You know, and for us, when we moved to, we lived remote for many years and we moved, we had been five years at the south end of Baranoff Island. I was a hatchery manager. I worked in fisheries for 30 years. And so we, my girls lived remote for many, many years, and we homeschooled, and then we moved into Sitka. And they got to enter school there, first time they'd ever been in a public school. And um, which was, you know, that was a bit of a, you know, I think it was more uh, heart-wrenching for us than it was for the kids, but they did great. Um, and they thrived in Sitka, and they got all those things. They got to travel. They, you know, they were really well-rounded people, and that's why I joined the Sitka School Board because I just thought that was so important that we, you know, do everything that we can. Um, and it's that all those things that add up and create that successful school experience. You know, there's still students that fall through the cracks, and that's terrible, and 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 that's why. That, that system needs to be so robust. One of the things that we do at the Association of Alaska School Boards is we have a whole group that works on what's called the conditions for learning. That's the, it used to be called Alaska Initiative for Community Engagement, and it was built on um, some federal funding that we got to really work with families um, and community members and engaging with schools. It's broadened now, and we have, you know, we we have probably a dozen, maybe fourteen people now that work on several different projects across the state, and they work on family and community engagement. They work uh, with social emotional learning, uh, trauma engaged practices, those kinds of things, and we call it now the conditions for learning. It's all those things that you need for students to be successful. You know, I think how can you not work on these things? Like, how can you not consider that? And it needs to be a part of our educational system. And I think it goes back a long ways. I mean, even, you know, years and years and years ago, athletics, extracurricular activities, um, all those things were have been and still are a critical part of the American education system. When you have exchange students that come from other places um, and they have never been exposed to that, it blows them away, you know. Drama and debate, um, 
my girls were big into drama and debate. And, um, you know, to see students from Europe or whatnot come and as a second language, English as a second language, enter into drama, debate, forensics, and do well, that was thrilling, you know, to see that happen. And by the way, my daughter Megan was John, Representative Jonathan Christ Tompkins debate partner in high school. <laughs> it's full circle. Yeah. So we are uh, basically out of time. So I'm going to wrap up with uh, kind of the question that I've been asking everybody. And I, I told this to Lon before we started. Um, my question is, if you could choose one person, dead or alive, they get a vote, they get to sit next to Senator Tobin on the floor of the Alaska State Senate and help us out. Who would you choose? Well, I thought about that since you asked asked me the question, and, and initially I I was going to say it would be Governor Hammond, um, but the more that I thought about it, the more uh, I realized the person that I think about a lot that had an influence on me was it would be somebody nobody would would really know except for my family was uh, a man by the name of Gil Whitman, and he ended up being my adopted grandfather. He was born and raised in Texas. Uh, and in the late 20s, eloped with his wife to Colorado uh, and settled in a small ranch in the West Plum Valley um, and uh, was a rancher in Douglas County, Colorado, became a county commissioner for, I think he served on the, as a county commissioner for maybe 35 years, um, was on the fair board, all those kinds of things. And we ended up being neighbors, and that's kind of how I got to know him. I I uh, would ride my bicycle down to the ranch and, you know, when I was, I don't know, eight or nine and um, wanted a day's work. Well, he really kind of became my grandfather because one of my biological grandfathers had passed. Um, And he was the man that I think about all the time on and how he approached um, politics, how he approached the human condition um, and the honor and integrity he brought to that. So I try to emulate that and think about what would Gil Whitman do if he were sitting here and listen to some of those people at times, you know, go on a rant or, or do something. And you know what? I mean, he might get upset outside the room, but you'd never know it. And he'd find a way to make it work. And um, so it would be Gil Whitman. Senator Gil Whitman, we're going to wrap it up yeah. with that. Lon, thank you so much. I very much appreciate you coming in and talking to us. Thanks today. for having me. I really enjoyed it. So you have been listening to the Empty Office Podcast, uh, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, leave a positive review, which will help spread the word. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there.